Well, let's pray first before we start today. Well, Father, we, God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this church and um, just for being able to have a place where we can come and open up your word, God, and study it um, line upon line and precept upon precept. And Father, I just pray that you'll bless this hour that we have together to look at the book of James. Father, just uh, guard me from error. Help me to be clear and pray that your spirit would um, put these things into our hearts, God, so that we may not sin against you. Um, bless this time. I pray that, that you bring out more to the to the study. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. And so I thought we'd start off with doing our customary recap of what we've done so far, or at least recently. Last week, we came out of the very first part of Chapter 4, and what James has been doing is he's been confronting those who have had a, a sinful, worldly, and selfish desire that has led them to sin. That's what we've been looking at the first part of chapter 4. The, the selfishness and jealousy that these people have had in these churches have actually led them to fightings and quarreling, it says. And at the end of verse 4, in chapter 4, James clarified for us the reality of the position that these people have put themselves in, that these self-seeking, worldly-minded people have put themselves in a position that verse 4 says this, it said, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we talked about last week the seriousness of, of finding yourself in that place of being an enemy of God. But James did not leave the churches there. He doesn't leave them in this miserable predicament of being an enemy of God, but he extends grace to them. In verse 6, he extends this promise in verse 6 to those who would repent. He quotes a proverb, Proverb 3.34, and he told the churches that God does oppose the, oppose the proud, but that God gives grace to the humble. And just to avoid confusion, I thought I would mention that the grace spoken of here, it, this proverb, and, and, and the way especially James is using it, is that this isn't speaking of the initial grace that God gives at salvation. This isn't speaking of like a, a salvific grace that, that God saves with, but this is speaking of in this context to a Christian who has fallen into sin and therefore has disrupted his relationship with God and therefore needs grace to, to restore his, his uh, relationship with God. And that's what this, this grace is speaking of here. And so James has reminded the churches of the grace that's available if they repent. And now in verse 7 and following is our text for today. And, and James is going to tell the, the churches directly what they should do in response to this proverb or this truth that God will give grace to the humble. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I'll start reading in verse 7. James says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
And so now let's, let's go back and, and look at the beginning here of these commands from James. The first thing he says is to submit, therefore, to God. Submit to God. And, and as I said, this is coming out of the initial promise that God has given in the Proverbs, that God will give grace to the humble. And because that is there, that grace is available, we should submit to God and receive that grace. And the second part of verse 7 here is, is telling us one way in which we do this. He says to resist the devil. And so we see both sides of our responsibility with God to receive this, this grace and reconciling our relationship with him. If we're in sin, the first thing is we're to submit to God. We're to submit to the will of God. We're to submit our thinking and our judgment to his. And we're to become obedient to his word. And the second thing we're supposed to do, we're to resist God's enemy, the devil. That's the second part of that, is to resist the devil, God's enemy. And so we, so we, know, why, we know why Satan is God's enemy, right? Satan was found to have sin. God cast him out of heaven, this, this great place that he had. Um, pride was found in Satan's heart, and he was cast out of heaven. And so we can see why Satan hates God. I mean, we can see why he fights God and, and why he, he's angry with God. Um, but why does Satan hate us? Why is Satan likewise our enemy and a problem for us? Well, I think it's as James mentioned in chapter 3, if you remember when James was teaching on why we shouldn't curse other people, the reason was that people are made in the image of God, and they bear the image of God. And so because we bear the image of God, Satan wants to destroy us and mar what God has put here on the earth as, as his image bearer. And so it's, it's just natural that Satan will seek our destruction as well. And so he's our enemy. And so part of, of honoring God and submitting to God is, is um, resisting his enemy and our enemy, the devil. Right? So just as, we, just as God gave this promise of grace, if we'll humble ourselves, the scripture also promises here that Satan will flee from us if we resist him. That's a, that's a great promise to know that Satan will flee if we resist him. Our responsibility is to resist him. And I'm just going to read, I'm going to read an illustration that I found in this commentary by a Puritan, Thomas Manton, um, in reference to the devil. And he's just giving an illustration of how this works, how if we resist Satan, he will flee from us. This is how he describes the devil. He says, he's like a dog that standeth looking and waving his tail to receive somewhat from those that sit at the table. But if nothing be thrown out, he goes his way. Right? So we kind of get the idea that the, the, the dog is there just waiting for somebody to give, waiting for something to be thrown out. But if the, the people at the table don't throw anything out, he's going to go his other way. He's going to go find it somewhere else. And so that's the, that's the illustration that he uses where I thought was helpful. Um, but we, we see this being um, played out with Jesus and his temptations. In Matthew chapter 4, um, we see the ex example of Jesus resisting, resisting the devil and I'm just going to read that passage there in verse 9. And he, the devil, said to him, Jesus, all these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came to minister to him. And so that's just an example of Christ himself resisting the devil with the word of God and Satan fleeing from him. 
Okay, so let's go on. In verse 8, we have another similar two-sided responsibility to God. In verse 8, it says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so, so he, he uses this language, draw near to God, and he, being God, will draw near to you. Right? And Matthew's gospel illustrates us, I think, where some of this language might be coming from, this drawing near to God, which is usually used as a, um, an act of worship, a drawing near to God in, in service, even in the, in the temple, um, to give sacrifices. But in Matthew's gospel, it illustrates what happens um, at the crucifixion of Jesus. At the crucifixion of Jesus and at the sacrifice of Christ, the veil in the temple was torn, separating the people and, and primarily the priests from the holiest of holies. And so what God is showing us is this great access, this wide open access that we have to God, to the presence of God. And so James is saying, draw near to God. The veil's been torn. Um, the access is fully there. If we will draw near, we will, God will be there and meet us there. There's no veil there holding us back anymore. We have full access to the presence of God. So if we will draw near, we surely will find him there. And as I said, it's a two-sided um, command here. Now the other side of the coin is at the end of verse 8, where James says this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so again, it's, it's almost like another reference to um, the temple scene of the Old Testament. Because uh, the prescription in Exodus 30 for, the, for the, the priests who serve in the temple was that they must wash their hands. And this made them ceremonially clean so that they could serve in the temple. And so this is the language that, that James is using here to as a mostly Jewish audience in these churches but the idea, because these people are not temple priests, they're not priests that serve in the temple, this is speaking of an outward cleansing of sin, an outward repentance, an outward putting off of sin, is what this, this language of cleansing the hands should, should mean to the people and to us. And to go right along with this, right along with the outward putting off of sin, of cleaning your hands, James says also to purify your hearts. So... God, and therefore James, isn't just demanding an outward putting off of sin, but an inward purification of sin. Right? It's, it's signifying both. And that's what these people here um, were missing, because James calls them double-minded. He calls them double-minded. Literally, like, the words are double-souled. So these people who we've been reading about um, in these churches that James is addressing, they've been coming to church, They've probably been serving. They've been attempting to teach a lot of them, um, but they're, they're divided. They're coming to church um, to serve God and to love God, but with their actions and with their worldly mindset, they've actually been envious of each other, jealous of each other, stirring up fighting and dissension in the church. Um, so these people are double-minded. They don't have a soul devotion to God and to his will and to his ways. So James calls them double-minded. Now, in verse 9, James is going to explain further what this cleansing and this repentance should look like. In verse 9, he says, Be miserable to everyone who just got here. We're in James chapter 4, and now in verse 9, he says, and welcome everyone. Um, he says this, he says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, as I said, we've been hearing um, everything that James has been saying to these churches um, from the very beginning of James. And we've seen a lot of sin happening in this church. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just list some of the things that, we've, that James has addressed in these churches. They were being partial to the rich. The people in these churches were already being partial to the rich. They were mistreating the poor. They had unbridled tongues. James already spoke to them about the sins of their mouths and, and, and the sins of, of defaming each other. Some have been teaching a, a, a misskewed understanding of the gospel of what saving faith is. Some in the churches have been teaching that this mental, uh, just a, a, a purely mental assent to the gospel will save, and not a true saving faith that actually produces obedience and good works. Some have been teaching that that James had to correct. Um, as I said, there's, there's been many with jealousies and envy inside of them that have been leading these churches to fight. And James, James even used the word to murder. There was possibly even murder happening in these churches. So you can see how verse 9 is very appropriate for a church who has gone this far, that this was no time for joy, but this church needed to be mourning. This church should have been mourning over their sin. And this is because our sin grieves God. Right? The, script, the scriptures even speak of uh, the Holy Spirit being grieved by our sin. Right? God does not will for us to sin. He does not want us to sin. And when we do, it grieves him and it grieves his spirit. And so I think this text is showing us that there is very um, appropriate times that when we fall into sin and, and that we've, we need to repent, that there is a time where mourning and weeping is definitely appropriate. That's the seriousness of sin. I mean, we've seen it all through the Old Testament, don't you? When it speaks of the sackcloth and ashes that people would put on, when they know that they defended a holy God. I mean, they literally went as far to cut off their hair sometimes, dust on, dust on their head and, and sackcloth and ashes just to, just to mourn, to have an appropriate mourning. You know, when's the last time, I think, when's the last, ask yourself, when's the last time has you even shed a tear over your sin? The fact that you've offended God and, and sinned against him. Um, so, yeah, there is an appropriate time for this. And that's what James is, he's not just saying there's appropriate times for that. He's basically telling these people, this is what you should be doing. Your sin is so, so ugly and has gotten so bad that you should be weeping over your sins. I have an example here of Peter. Good old Peter is always easy to find an example of him um, sinning and messing up. But here I have the example of him denying the Lord from Luke chapter 22 and verse 60. I'll just read it to you, but this is how it goes. It says, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. Right? It says that the Lord looked at him and he remembered the word of the Lord. And so that's the appropriate response there. As we're hearing the word of the Lord in James, in all this instruction for us to um, fall into these sins and to um, deny the Lord in this way, with, uh, weeping bitterly would be an appropriate response. Um, another example that, that you may go to look at in reference to this would be the Psalm 51, the Psalm of David. Mm -hmm. The Psalm that David writes after he's uh, been exposed 
of sinning with Bathsheba and killing her husband, grave sins um, that that definitely would be appropriate for the broken spirit and the contrite heart that that David says that he has as a result of those things. Okay, so let's go on. So again, in reference to, to everything we're looking at now, I was saying earlier that all of this is flowing out of the promise that God, I mean, that, that James gives in um, verse 6 of chapter 4, where it says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we've just been talking about this grace that, that God gives to those who will humble themselves before him. And so verse 10 that we're in now basically repeats that. Um, James kind of presses it home again by repeating it in just, in just a little different way, and we'll look at the difference here. But in verse 10, James says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So here it says that God will exalt you. And so how are, how are we to understand this, that if we come to God in a broken and contract spirit, we humble ourselves before him, how, what does it mean that he will exalt us? Because I think a lot of times we can think, well, wow, I mean, that sounds like I'm going to be put right back in the same place that I was before where maybe my pride will um, stir up again because of this exaltation that God has given to me. But I think um, Simon Kistemacher in his commentary makes a very good point um, in explaining this, and, and I liked how he explained it, because he says the reason that God exalts you is because you've already humbled yourself, right? It's a reaction by God to bless your humble, broken spirit. Um, and because it is God the one who's exalting you, it's not you exalting you. The person who's truly humbled himself and, and come to the place where he's realized he's sinned before God, he realized that God is the one who deserves the glory and praise, this is the man who's ready to be exalted. And so this is the man who will be, like Paul said, um, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That person at his exaltation will boast in the Lord and not himself. And so that's, that's how we should understand this. Uh, so I appreciated that. Okay, so we're kind of going to, we're going to change subjects here just a little bit. James is going to change subjects, but I just wanted to stop and remind us that we have seen here another great promise in the scripture, a great promise that God has given us that, that goes all the way back to the Proverbs that even if we fall into sin, if we will but humble ourselves, God will meet us there. God is ready to give us grace. He's the giving God. And so I just want us to, to remind us of that, that if you are in sin, if you will but humble yourself and repent, God will meet you there, and the grace will be there for you. Okay, so let's go on. Um, in verse 11, James again is going to return to the sin of the tongue. We dealt, he dealt a lot with the tongue already. He's going to return again to it right now, shortly. Um, so we know that, that there is these sins that come out of the tongue, and we know where they originate. As with all sin, the sin originates with these lusts that we have in our flesh, and these are coming out of a very worldly thinking. Um, James calls this a worldly thinking. When, when someone is envious and jealous and self-seeking, James, to James that's a worldly attitude. That's not a, a Christian attitude. One who seeks their own exaltation in a bad way, is, is, that's not a Christian attitude. Um, so James describes it with the, with a, the word worldly thinking. So let's, let's read this, this section here and then we'll go through it. Starting in verse 11, James says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to both save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? So back to verse 11, he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. And so I'm just going to note here that this is a, a really helpful translation of it. Don't speak against the, another. Because the, the NIV translates it um, not to slander. It's almost like a very, a, a very narrow view of the, the command here. But James is saying don't speak in any way, not just to slander, which is maybe one way we can do it, but don't speak at all against a brother in a very general sense. Um, and with the rest of verse 11, James is going to explain to us the reason, and this is what his point is, the reason that it's so wrong. Why is it so bad to speak against a brother? And we mentioned one point earlier, we kind of looked at what he said in chapter 3 about how everyone is made in the image of God. We all bear the image of God, and so therefore that's one reason that we should not sin against the brother. We should not curse him, he said in chapter 3, is because man is made in the image of God. And to curse man is to indirectly curse um, the Creator. And so that's one reason. Here's another reason he's going to give us. He says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother actually speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And so that, that can be kind of tricky. So let's go through the reasoning here. This is James' reasoning. He says, if you're speaking against a brother or even judging a brother, of course with, a, with an unrighteous intent, um, what you are actually doing is you're speaking against the law. Now, now what does that mean? And what law is it that we're speaking against? Um, in chapter 2, James mentioned the law. He discusses the law. And in James 2, chapter 8, he calls it a royal law. He calls it the royal law. And there he specifically is quoting Leviticus 19.18 that says this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what does it mean to speak against this law? To speak against the law in, in the way James is using it, he's saying to willfully disobey it to set God's law aside and go ahead and sin. That, that's the way he's, he's kind of using that there. Um, so to speak against the law is to say, basically, I don't, I don't need that law. I don't agree with that law. You're judging the law saying it's not worthy of being kept. I'm going to go ahead and speak against my brother anyways and therefore break the law that says we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and I think there's also a clue because so there's some debate as far what exact law, uh, law is James referring to here. Uh, but even in verse 12, he uses the word specifically neighbor again. Right? So that was kind of a clue to kind of solidify for me specifically. And it makes perfect sense. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so therefore, to, do you want your neighbor to be speaking against you? Of course not. And so for us to do that is to be speaking against God's law and to be judging it. And that's the seriousness of this sin. Um, verse 12. You have something familiar? Yes, yeah. um, I think that's good what you brought out. Um, and, and it just kind of reminds me that, you know, like if we will not accept the law of God, we'll make a law unto ourselves. You know? And it's almost like what I get, what I'm seeing from what James is saying here is almost like man will just develop his own standard of ethics. Mm -hmm. You know, if he, once he rejects God's law, he's going to sort of develop his own standard 
of morality, which is no standard at all. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And uh, it's amazing, you know, because I think about that, you know, even in my own life. If I, you know, when I, when I, when I choose to sin or when I choose to speak against a brother, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like, yeah, I'm almost rationalizing a, 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 a standard in my own mind that's not even, that doesn't even exist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay. I'm, in this way or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but it's just, I don't know, it's just very, very subtle, but it's very dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when we abandon God's law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so in these churches, when they did that, and, and I think the same would be with us if we continued in it, the result is going to be this fighting and quarreling and mm-hmm. the church just in disarray and it's going to be horrible, right? So, so I'm glad we have these warnings um, from God. Um, yeah, so you talk about making a law unto yourself. Well, let, let's look at verse 12 because James is going to set us straight on whose law it is and whose laws to be obeyed. Because in verse 12 he says this, he says, There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And, it's, and I bet it seems to me there's almost like a mocking um, question here at the end, but who are you who judge your neighbor? Right, the one who's the judge and the lawgiver is able to save and destroy. Who are you then to judge your neighbor? Um, I put it like this. I think that James's aim here is to put these people in their place. These people who have been so arrogant enough to judge God's law and put it aside and say it's not worthy of being obeyed. James is setting these people straight and saying um, who it is that sits in that place as judge. He says there's only one lawgiver and judge. And in, and in this one lawgiver and judges, in his lordship and in his sovereignty, he is able to save, he's able to destroy. And that doesn't fit the description of, a, of fallen creatures. That fits only the description of the, the only creator. And as I said, James, from that, James asks him in verse 12, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Really putting the people in, the, in their place. And God will do this in the scriptures in many places. He will set himself where he needs to be, and he will humble us. And I, I have the example here um, from Moses in Deuteronomy 32. I'll just read this text to you, but you can see how God is uh, hes a jealous God. He's jealous for his own glory and his own standing. And he says things like this in Deuteronomy. He says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death, and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver out from my hand. And so I think it's a very bold thing for us to ever, and I know, like Emilio said, it's a very subtle thing, but when we do go as far, which may seem like a small thing to us, to speak against a brother, we're being as bold to set aside God's law that says, love your brother as yourself, and we're putting ourselves in a, in a very bad place because there is only one judge, and that's not us. It's a very dangerous place to be. And that's why we get so much warning here in James about this sin of the mouth. And, so yes, ma'am. Question, you know, mm-hmm. How do we, because there's a balance in the sense that when we judge, we judge righteously. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible talks about that. And so it's mm-hmm. like, you know, people are off with doctrine or they're off with different, you know, it's not saying like we can never judge, but when we do, we're to do it righteously, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, we're to take the plank out of our own eyes first yeah. before we look at the speck in our brothers. And it um, doesn't mean that we we just, um, you know, say certain individuals are okay or, or whatnot. I mean, we, we still are to, do you know what I'm saying? Of course. Holy no. Family, how do we, like, 
accountability if, if a brother is sinning or is not still considered well, good question, and I'm glad you asked. I mean, but so I, I kind of look at look at what James is doing. Is James not judging all of these people for their sins? You know, but not in a bad way. He's definitely doing it with righteous intent. He's wanting these people to re- repent for their own good. Right. He's not writing this letter to, you know, even though at points I think he is shaming them. He's doing it so that they will repent, not you know, out of malicious intent. So yeah, of course, there's a time when we. When we judge, you know, with righteous judgment, when we have taken the plank out of our own eyes so that we can help, now help a brother to, mm-hmm. to see where his sin is at, yeah, of course, Jesus speaks to that, and there's, that's good. There's uh, a thing that's stuck in my mind. Um, when watching Pastor Emilio open air one day, and the guy was asking him, who is he to judge? Mm-hmm. And uh, telling him to judge not, you know. Mm-hmm. Pastor Emilio held that Bible up and goes, no, this is mm-hmm. what I'm judging you with. Mm-hmm. Am I right or wrong? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With scripture. Right. Going, you know, judging you with scripture. Yeah. What does scripture say? Not what I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, good. Anyways, just stuck in my head and then that's a lot of that's a good thing to stick in in your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think in the same way. And I think we can even judge unrighteously even using the scriptures. If we're if we're character to say in a bad way we can even say truthful things you know the old southern baptist saying is you do it through prayer requests like pray for our brother who's like this and this and this <laughs> well you may be doing that just to make him look bad you know so i think it has to do with a lot of of your intent and and of course how your what your motive is behind that of course right but there, there's a great time and a necessary time to judge um like I would say what James' whole point has been here, we're to judge by people's fruit. People may say they have faith, but if they don't have any outworkings of that, if there's no obedience, if there's no fruit, we're definitely supposed to judge that and warn them that we're not seeing any fruit from them. So that now we're going to have another transition here in the text. And, and just to wrap up again, because, yes, James has dealt very much with the issue of the sins of the mouth and the sins of the tongue. And so I just thought I'd put one text here from the Proverbs um, just to show you on the contrary of how, um, what our mouth should be functioning as. In Proverbs 10:11, it says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. It's not to tear down. Our mouth should be to build up the brothers. So even if it's in judgment, even if it's in a righteous judgment, our, ho- our, our mouth should be used to build them up. That's, right. that's, what, that's what we should be using our mouths for. Okay, let's go on in the text here um, to James 13 and following. And, in, and James seems to be, and I use the word attack, but he seems to be continuing to um, address those in the churches. These people have become arrogant and they become pride, prideful and they have not humbled themselves under the lordship of, of God and under his sovereignty. And he's addressed, addressing their thinking, their worldly thinking. I'll, I'll read the whole passage here starting at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. 
Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay, so first thing I want to look at here is in, in verse 13. Let's look at all of the plans that these people James is writing to. Look at all their plans of the people and see if we can notice what's missing from the plans. First, it says that they have a date set, right? They're going to do this today or tomorrow. They're, they're set on that. They've picked out a place. Here it says such and such a city. They have a timeline of how long they're going to stay there. They're going to, they're going to be there a year. And they have this plan to engage in business. And their plan, they, they're going to make a profit. That's what their plan is. And so what's missing from their plans? What's missing from all this discussion in their minds? Oh, God. God, exactly. The God that we just spoke about um, in verse 12 this one sovereign who's able to save and to destroy. That's what's missing from their, their plans. Because these people have stated, they're saying, we're going to go do this for a year. But these people don't even know what their lives are going to be like tomorrow, much less a year. Yes, Tricia. They were they were gonna get ready to go see the movie Fireproof. Remember mm -hmm. when that came out a couple of years ago? Mm -hmm. And um, and they were all excited about it. And like a week before, um, they were they were out driving, I guess, on the way home for, on a windy road, mm -hmm. and someone had broke down. And so the husband, being a good Samaritan, got out of the car to help the people that were broken down, mm -hmm. and a car hit him and killed him. Mm -hmm. Going yeah, to see fireproof, um, right? You know, and just yeah, yeah. And here they were going to, you know, and they're Christians and love the Lord and everything, and they were going to do that. But we just we don't know, mm -hmm. so we have to like you know, like you were saying, hold everything loose and mm -hmm. say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Yeah. Not only that, it keeps it keeps our focus day to day because if we think of the future and we think, oh, we're going to do this and that. Again, where is God in that picture? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. and if we take one day at a time, it's because we're constantly we're relying on God, Christ alone, day day after day after day. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think the greatest example is just um, Lord's Prayer. You know, give us this day our daily bread. Give us not into temptation. You know, it's an active participation and dependence upon God. Like Nancy, do not worry about today for, or tomorrow. For today has enough trouble on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, you guys got all my references, so let's move on. <laughs> no, but that—I mean—that—that that is it. That's and that's the point of the text, right? Is that that God is on our minds and we are submitting to Him. Yes, Trish. And one, I was just going to say one yeah. thing: it's freeing when we live that way, mm -hmm. because um, we—you don't have the grace to worry about tomorrow. He hasn't mm -hmm. given us the grace for that. Mm -hmm. You know, he hasn't even given, but we have, we have the grace for today, mm -hmm. and it really is so free when you, um, you know, you're not consumed about something you can't even control anyway. Yeah, yeah, you definitely get a grace from that, like James has been saying. If we would humble ourselves and submit to whatever he has, right, he says that's where he has grace for us, and it will be easier. You know, for just since we're giving examples, my favorite example like, is kind of goes along with what Trisha's saying. You've got these couples who's going to do what, you know, is a good thing. We're going to go see a Christian movie. We're going to be edified, you know, praise the Lord. Kirk Cameron's in a movie and, you know, preaching the gospel. And he gets killed, mm -hmm. right? He probably thought, well, hey, I was going to do a, a good thing. Why would the Lord take me out now? You know, I always think about Stephen and the story of Stephen. You know, he's there preaching this, 
great message to the Jews. I mean, gives them the entire history of their timeline. Um, you know, this guy could have been used by the Lord to do massive works amongst the Jews and converting them. But the Lord said, no, you know, this is your, this is your day. Right. You know, and the Lord calls them home at that point. So we don't even know. We, even if we have righteous plans, you know, we don't know that the Lord, that's the Lord's will. And he'll show us. Um, and so, yeah, verse 14, it's humbling. It's humbling that, that it says we're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. To me, I mean, it, it, it's a humbling thing. And we are here just a little while. And it's up to God on how long that little while is going to be. We know it's going to be a little while, but how long that's going to be and how little of a long time that's going to be, it's, that's up to God. And that's why we should, with everything that we've just said, that's why we should incorporate verse 15 into our thinking. Because verse 15 says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And so before we concern ourselves with the, all these plans that we have for the future, God must first even will for us to live another day. That's where, that's where it all starts is with God's will and determining that we'll even have another day. We're, we're totally 100% dependent on God and on his will and his decisions for our future, that we'll even breathe another day. And, and, so, this, and so everything that we're saying right here is exactly right. This is what God wants. He wants us to submit to his sovereignty, to his lordship, that he is the one that's running everything in our lives. And that's where he wants us to be, very humble people that, that's willing to accept God's will for our lives. And then there's nothing better than when I hear something. There's nothing more um, reassuring to me than when I hear somebody say, you know, well, if the Lord wills this or if the Lord, especially when it's dealing with a big thing. You know, we can be in a, in a, in a church meeting and we can be talking about some big things, you know, whatever it is. And like if I hear Emilio say, well, hey, you know, if the Lord wills, this, this will happen. If not, I'm okay with that too. Praise the Lord. To me, that is, that's where, you know, that's a very comforting thought to be in a place where you know that, that we're resting in, in God's will and, and not whatever we can try to, try to do. It's comforting. Here I wanted to show, just read uh, really quickly, a couple places in the scripture where we see Paul, for instance, incorporating this statement, if the Lord wills. And there's actually very many places in the scriptures where Paul uses this idea of, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. Right? Maybe I'll, I'll just read one of them for, for, for time's sake. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul's writing to the, to the church in Corinth and he's telling them of his plans to come and visit them, this is what he says. He says, Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And then I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. So Paul's, I mean, so yeah, Paul's making these plans to come see the, the church in Corinth, but he says, if the Lord wills, I'll come and see you. And for me, it's, it's kind of interesting to read that because I put another note that it sounds like Paul is dealing with very similar issues to what James is dealing with. It sounds like there's some people in the church that's doing a lot of this, a lot of talking. Paul says, I'm going to come and see your fruit. I'm going to come and see your, what the Spirit's doing. Right? It's almost a very similar situation to what James is dealing with. Right, so, so if, when you search the scriptures on that, it, it's, it's actually quite amazing how many times um, 
Paul does submit himself in that way and says, if the Lord wills. It was actually, it was actually really interesting. Even in some of the places that the commentary said, hey, look, here's a place where Paul doesn't say that. When I look it up, he actually did it at the, at the end, which is funny because, I mean, it's just so, Paul is just fully devoted to the will of God. But on that point is that there are some times in the scriptures that Paul doesn't say this phrase when he's making plans. And so there's just two short ones I wanted to read them just to make a point. Because in Acts 15.36, it says this. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we have proclaimed the word of the Lord to see how they are. So Paul tells Barnabas of these plans. Let's go back to all these churches that we preach the gospel at and see how the people are. And he doesn't, he doesn't throw in the phrase, Well, if the Lord wills, let's do that. In Romans 15.28, Paul said, therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, then I will go on my way to you to Spain. And so then again, Paul makes plans without throwing in the phrase, um, if the Lord wills. And I just wanted to read those just to make the point that this isn't just a little token phrase that we tag on to the end of everything that we say, as if that in itself, you know, has any type of efficacy or is going to do anything, right? Of course, the point is that this is how we're thinking. This is how we pray. This is how we do life, you know? And it is very helpful because, like I said, there's tons of places where Paul does say that. And so it's a helpful thing to remind yourself, you know, even the smallest of plans. Yeah, we're going over to In-N-Out after church for dinner. You know, I'll, I'll meet you there if the Lord wills, you know? If the Lord wills, I'll make it that far in my vehicle, you know? I mean, that's... So it's not, it's not a necessary thing, but it, it can be helpful. It can definitely be helpful. But the point is to think, to think like that, whether you speak it or not. Um, last two verses. Um, verse 16 is going to get, um, he, he's bringing it right back to those who, who have failed to acknowledge the Lord in this way. And this is what he tells them is a result of these people who have not acknowledged the Lord in this way. In verse 16 it says, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so I just wanted to make the point here is that the self-sufficient um, thinking, the self-reliant thinking that these people had that weren't um, uh, integrating God and his will into their plans, it's not a small thing. It's not a small error. Because James calls it, he calls it evil. It's fully evil to not be submitted to the will of God in these ways in making your plans. And I just wanted to make one more clarification, even though nobody brought it up. Um, but I just wanted to be, to be sure about this, is that I wanted to be sure about what, the, what specifically is the sin being spoken of here. Because it's not the sin of making plans. It's not the sin of even wanting to do business and make money. That's not the sin. The sin is doing all those things without incorporating the will of God into it and being submissive to God. That's the problem. Like, like Paul fully makes plans to go do things. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing business. That's why we work a lot of times is to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's when we don't incorporate um, the will of God into that. And maybe a good example of that is like uh, Pastor Emilio put in his blog. At some point, you may have to forfeit a job if it interferes too much with you fellowshipping with the brethren, coming to church, those types of things, 
I mean, we have to incorporate the revealed will of God that says we need to be in fellowship, we need to become the church, we need to be taking the ordinances. That's one way that we can submit ourselves to the will of God and, and, and do, if the Lord wills, I'll take this job. You know? Bless you. So, maybe this is a good verse to end on here, verse 17. It says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And what James is here is he's basically explaining to us the, legit, the legitimacy of the sins of omission, which means if, if the Scripture says to do something and we know that's what the Scripture says and we don't do it, that is sin, which, 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 is, which can be a heavy load. Because especially as much as we've just read now four chapters of the book of James with a lot of instruction, a lot of exhortations, do a lot of things, now we know. And God says that if we fail to do them, that is sin. So now we have a lot on our plate, and, and thank God that he put these, this um, verse 6 in there that says if we will but humble ourselves and repent, he will give us grace, because that's what we're going to need. We're going to need grace to do all of these things we know that God wants from us, that God deserves for us to do. Um, we need the grace of God. And so let's just make sure that we are in that place that we're all ready to speak of, and, and be humble. Yes, Emilio. Um, you know, you mentioned that, you know, about all the exhortations, mm-hmm. all the imperatives, imperatives the commandments yep. of Scripture, and I just think, mm-hmm. like, when we're, when we're looking at so many commandments, you know what I mean, in Scripture and exhortations, it's very easy to get overwhelmed, mm-hmm. you know, with like, oh, I'm going to do this, oh, I'm going to do that, oh, you know, I don't even think I can retain them all in my hand, mm-hmm. right? And then it's not all at once. Yeah. And it just reminds me of the law of Christ, you know, the law that that says, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you have, a, if you love Christ, you will keep His commandments. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's almost like if you just focus on loving Christ and being pleasing to Him, mm-hmm. everything in a sense, it's almost an oversimplistic way of saying it, but in a sense, love does no wrong mm-hmm. to a neighbor, etc. That is helpful. I mean, that helps me right now even thinking about that. Right, so, right, yeah, I mean, that's, that's beautiful. Cause it, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I, wish it I wish somebody would have said that. Um, but no, that is it, right, because love covers a, a multitude of sins. So if our mindset is, let's, let's right now, even though we know there's a million ways that we can sin against our brethren, if we, if we seek to love our brethren, we're not going to do these things. It's not going to enter into our minds to speak against the brother if our if all we want to do is love them. And so, yeah, that's, that was great and in a, in a good way to end. So let's go to worship. we got about five minutes. Thank you. God bless you guys.